0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good to see you guys. Honestly, this is a larger group than I expected on a day like today with the ice. I think maybe that's just my Utah trauma and people don't travel when it's snowy and icy. And so you guys are a lot tougher than we were. But I appreciate you coming and and being a part of this uh, this worship time. and, And as we start a new series... That I've been excited about for a while now. We've been talking about this since probably July about doing this series called I am and we're going to be evaluating the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. So the seven I am statements of Jesus recorded in the gospel of John. And uh, one thing I've really learned a lot in my my walk with the Lord over the last 20 some years that I've known him is the importance of asking questions. I think sometimes we, uh, we can be in atmospheres or even in cultural settings where it's, it's kind of looked down upon to ask questions and, and, we really should be a people of curiosity, I think, as followers of Jesus. We should really be people who ask a lot of questions, even the, the tough questions. We should ask those all the time and be people who are constantly curious about who our Lord is, who our, our Jesus is, and the things he has to say about himself. In fact, questions are something that would happen a lot in, in the ministry of Jesus. You know, 370 times we have recorded of Jesus is, is asked questions to him. So 307 times we have record of, of somebody asking Jesus a question. Now he only directly responds to about eight of those. Okay, so there's a lot of open-ended questions that Jesus gets in his ministry. And 183 times he is asking questions recorded in the gospels. And so questions are something we see a a pattern of all through the New Testament and something we should constantly be thinking about. And it's, and I love that we're a part of a community that that asks questions. I don't want you to ever think that you can't ask questions here. There's nothing that's off the table in asking questions. I think they're important. And we're going to be asking a question through these next seven Weeks As we explore the IM series and this question is is really one of the most important questions any human being can ask and that is who is Jesus Christ who is he what did he have to say about himself what is his character what did he what did he care about sharing with his audiences and his followers around who he is. And these are the seven I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. Seven things that Jesus thought it was important, vital for us to answer this question of who Jesus was and is. And he uses seven metaphors. They're all combined with the simple phrase in Greek, ego, I me. ego, I mean, I am, I am. And then we're going to look at what those statements are. So to understand why this phrase, Ego I Me, I Am, is so important and why it would have perked the ears so quickly of the first generation of Christians and those living in the time of Jesus and after, we need to go a little bit of, do a little bit of Bible study in the Old Testament. So we're going to start off here with a little bit of Bible study, and we're going to talk about the divine name of God. The divine name of God. And some of you will already know this. But there's always a few who this is brand new information. Okay? So let's talk about the divine name of God. The phrase ego I me or I am is one of the most important phrases you'll see recorded in the old testament as it is the very name of God. The very name of God. It goes all the way back to Exodus three thirteen, when you have the setting of, of Moses in the burning bush. And Moses asks God, if I go to Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? So Moses is in the wilderness, in front of a burning bush, and he has just been told, you need to go to Egypt and free my people from slavery. And he goes, well, who should I say sent me? Because if you think about it, in ancient Near Eastern setting, there was a lot of different gods, a lot of different um, ideas of who God was. And so he wanted to really know in whose name do I come, and whose power and whose authority am I coming in so that people will actually take me seriously. And this phrase, or this word God, can be really confusing in our English language. It, It doesn't always capture well the meaning of what the Old Testament writers are trying to communicate to us the term God is is really what we see and I think when you want to I want you to think about when you hear the word God is I want you to think of title I don't want you to think of a, a person at this point or even a name I want you to think about a title because the word God in Hebrew is the word Elohim or the derivative of Elohim and this is not a name this is not God's name Elohim is not his name what it is, is it's a title or a phrase for someone to say, this is a spiritual being. This is a, this is divinity, right? And so if you were the, an ancient Near Eastern person, remember, we're the foreigners to the Bible, so we have to kind of meet them in their own world here for a little bit. We're foreigners to this. This wasn't written to us, right? So we have to enter their cultural context for a second. And if you were going to walk around and say, I follow God, the first question would have been, Which God? Who's God? The God of what? They wouldn't have understood that question. They would have asked more questions about who God was. And and I think in even our cultural setting, we say, well, I follow God. And we can still ask people, which one? What's his name? The God of consumerism? The God of what? Right? We still have this same type of phrase and terminology. But what we're talking about really more is a title. Which God? Which God and, and when you think about the term title, God or the word Elohim in the Old Testament, it uses, it's used in the same way that we would use the term CEO, chief executive officer. Right? No one goes around and say, hi, I'm chief ex- executive officer. Right? That, that is what they do or what they are, but it's not who they are. right? Chief executive officer, if I was to go around and just say, hi, senior pastor, you'd probably think I'm impersonal. I'm kind of a jerk, probably, if I went by my title all the time and didn't even give you my name, right? So there's a sense of, of impersonal, there's a sense of, of a title, there, there's a sense of understanding what they are, there's a spiritualness to them, there's a, there's a divinity to them, but it's impersonal. And so God says, you know what, I'm going to give you my name, I'm going to reveal something to you, Moses, that is important, that is precious, that is for you, and will explain not only who I am, but the fact that we have relationship together and so in exodus 314 he says this god replied to moses i am who i am this is a literally the phrase he uses there is hey i will be hey i am the one who says i will be this is what you are to say to the israelites because moses can't show up and say i will be will free us because that's a phrase only reverse, reserved for god only god could ever say that phrase in hebrew so he says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites, though. Yahweh, I am, or he will be, has sent me to you. And so this phrase, I am, or what you'll see in the Old Testament, this capital L-O-R-D, whenever you see the, the capital L-O-R-D, God, which is used about 6,300 times in the Old Testament, so it's, you'll see it a lot, is that phrase, I am. He will be spelled out in the phrase of Yahweh. Yahweh has sent me to you. So we have the divine name of God, something that the Israelites held so precious that they often would leave the vowels out so they couldn't even utter it because they were so afraid to blaspheme it. And so this is how they they took the vowels out of the term Yahweh so it wouldn't even be able to be pronounced. They were so afraid of, of dishonoring this name. And so the God's name that he's revealing to us in this story, this I am, is talking about this the eternal one. He's saying, I am the one that has always existed, that there was no beginning to. This is the eternal God of Israel, the one that is constant and existed and unchangeable, who was there at the very beginning of time and will be there at the end of time. This was an important characteristic revealing to Moses because he was entering into a, a land of Egypt where they serve different gods of different origins, of different powers, and he was saying, hey, the God that we serve, the, the, the he will be, the I am that is coming with me, is the one that conquers all of them, that was before all of them, that is more powerful than all of them. And then as you know the story, he displays his, his wonders and shows how powerful he is to the land of Egypt and to the Israelites. This I am, this Yahweh, this divine sacred name of God describes attributes and characters of who God is. This is an important contextual idea because as we explore the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring why Jesus, in his own words, is declaring himself to be the voice in the burning bush. That he is declaring himself to be the I am, the Lord God of Israel, in everything that he does. So let's look at the next idea of this is, is the Gospel of John's theme, because the main purpose that he's writing this, this letter, or writing all of these stories down for his people, is so that them that they will recognize that this is who Jesus is. He' asking or he's answering the question of who Jesus Christ is by saying, "He is the great, I am the one our ancestors worshipped. This is why in John 1.1 and verse 14, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the divine. He was the supreme being. He was the creator. He was, the connections here are endless. The Word became flesh. In verse 14, the Word became flesh. This God became flesh and dwelt, literally the Word is tabernacled, Tabernacled among us He was in the presence of God So where Jesus went in the flesh They were experiencing the I am They were experiencing God in the flesh Dwelling amongst them So what John is The main theme of John here And the thing that we're going to be exploring for the next seven weeks Is that to see and know God To understand who he is Is to know and see and understand the person of Jesus To answer the question of who Jesus Christ is, it starts with understanding that he was the God from beginning and to the end. That he was the God who who led Israel out of Egypt. He was the God that did all the things that we read about in the Old Testament last year and we'll continue to read into this year. This is a a grand statement and a statement that, that ultimately got him killed. You don't kill the guy who heals everybody, right? You don't kill the guy who brings people back to life. You keep that guy around for a rainy day right? You kill the guy who says, I am who I am, knowing exactly that he is claiming to be the Lord God of Israel. Jesus declared with his own mouth to the Pharisees, which would have took a lot of guts. Like, this is one of my, This is deep respect here. He says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be Yahweh, the I am, the eternal one, the one that always existed, the one who created all things, both in heaven and earth, seen and unseen. And so they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. So now we have context to where and why these I am statements are important. Let's dive into the first one, shall we? So the first one we're going to look at in this series is I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so if you have your Bibles with, with you, which I hope you do, or you have or on phones of some kind, we're going to read John chapter 6, 22 through 35 together. The story of when Jesus proclaims to be the bread of life. So the context of this is that he had just fed the 5,000 in the story. He walks on water right before this, and he does a sermon on a mount before he feeds the 5,000. So there are thousands of people following Jesus at this point, kind of waiting in anticipation for the next great miracle to occur, all right? So let's jump in here. It says, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that they had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus, saying, hey, I'm kind of hungry, let's go find Jesus. He fed us last time, he'll feed us again. When they found him on their side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't worry for the food that perishes, don't worry for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the son of man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. They asked, "What can we do to perform the works of God?" They asked. Jesus replied, "This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent." They kind of confused at this point. All right. What sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you? So all right, do something for us, Jesus. And you've got to think, Jesus is like, L- really? They asked, what are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, just as it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us some of this bread always, every day. Give us some of that manna. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So I think one of the big things that we can learn from this statement of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and one thing I think we all need to understand as followers of Jesus is that we can often be a lot like this crowd with Jesus. We can all act and have posture that are very similar to this crowd because we often have God and then our own expectations on God, right? We have God and then we have our expectations or assumptions on God that we put onto him. If you look at verses 26 through 27, let's start there. When Jesus says, I tell you, you are looking for me, okay, he says, great, you're, you're looking for me, you're coming to me, but it's not because you saw the signs. It's not because you saw the, what the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 was that I created the fishes and the loaves for. It's not that that you're finding me, that you're, you're interested in necessarily what the signs are pointing to, but what you really want is for your belly to be filled. I want the fishes and the loaves to eat so I'm not hungry anymore. And so their expectation was, all right, this Jesus guy, this, this person who is, is obviously powerful, we're going to continue to follow him, but we also are expecting him to continually feed us every day, just like Moses did with the manna, where every day God would pour down manna in the wilderness and Israel would eat. Every single day, they had full bellies because God provided this man. And so in their minds, their expectations were the same thing. Hey, we're going to have fishes and loaves every single day that we're following Jesus. That every single day, our bodily needs will be met because we're following Jesus. And so the the expectation the motivation was not in the person who was sent, who who is Jesus. And, And I don't think they're even recognizing here, here's God in the flesh, because I don't, you know, think about the, the perspective here. If, if you had God in the flesh, standing here right before you, would you be like, hey, what's for dinner? <laughs> I hope not. I hope you're not, hey, I'm, you know, you know, Taco Bell's got a sale. Why don't you go up there? Let's, let's head up there and have some dinner together. Right? I, I don't think many of us would have that posture if we only understood who Jesus was. So the people are experiencing the 5,000. They've heard the Sermon on the Mount. And and if you read the the Sermon on the Mount, this is the idea of the blessed are the meek. And and really this idea of blessed, or you can translate it as happy, but I think the best way to really translate the word blessed is satisfied. So Jesus just teaches, here's what satisfaction means. He says, here's a bunch of food and fish because you're hungry, I fed you. And then these thousands of people are then going, hey, I expect you to do that every single day with me. I want my bodily needs met. I need my physical needs met. And he's got to just be like, you missed everything I just said and everything I just did, and it points to who I am. Their expectation, again, was a long and happy life of dietary fed or full bellies where their dietary needs met so they could be happy, and just live a very comfortable life of God just pouring out his fishes and loaves every day. They didn't recognize necessarily who they were following, but merely was this transactional relationship by what God could give them. And as soon, as long as he could give them what they expected, they were happy and satisfied. And this is what unhealthy expectations lead to in our faith is a transactional faith. I do, we do not want to build transactional faith with our Lord. If you know the ending of this interaction with these thousands of people, all of them leave Jesus. Leads Jesus to a, a very, I think, emotional phrase, if you really put yourself in his shoes, where he looks at his disciples, the one who are left, the 12 of them that are left, and he goes, Are you going to leave me too? Because their expectations, the thousands of, of people who followed Jesus at this point, their expectations were, were, were unhealthy and, and, and just irrational a, a, a for Jesus. It was a transactional faith that they were looking to build. And Jesus said, I don't want that. I, it'd be better that you left me than live a transactional faith with me. And they sat at his teachings with admiration. They ate what he provided with praise and happiness. Yet when the tough lessons came, and it was a... If, Jesus is basically like, do you want me? And they said, no. We want what you can give us. Is that a healthy relationship? Absolutely not. It's a transactional relationship. And the number one expectation that will fragment any relationship, whether it be with God or with people is when we expect that person or that God to fulfill every need in our life so that we can be happy all the time. That we can fulfill every need that we'll ever need. We'll never have a moment where we're unhappy, where we're confused, where we're needy, where we're desperate. And this is how a lot of people build their relationship around Jesus. As they hear the greatness and the wonder of Jesus, and they go, yes, I want some of that. But then life is still hard. Life is still difficult. Life is still full of need and desire and dependency. And they go, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought if I committed my life, if I followed Jesus, everything would just be fixed. You know what what Jesus did in my life the moment I came out of my prodigal years? into kind of relationship with him. He made me <laughs> go to every person I hurt in the last year and apologize. That sucked. Because how hard it was to show the humility of going to someone and say, I broke you. I said this. I did this. I, it was extremely difficult to do that. But it was one of the most rewarding things to also walk through because I got to see how God reconciled and restored relationships with people that I had broken. It was not a happy time for Kelly, but it was something my soul needed. It was something that filled me with something greater than what I thought I ever would have expected to have. These people in Jesus' day clamored for him as long as Jesus fed him as long as Jesus fed them, as long as he talked about raising up the poor, they were saying, yes. They looked at his political agendas and say, oh, man, you're the anointed one of, of, of God. You're the Messiah. You're going to tear down the chains of Rome over us, and we're going to have this great Israel like Solomon's Day again, and we're going to rule and, and be powerful. And, and he doesn't do that. So they leave him. They, death, they depart from him. They don't really want him. This should all make us stop and reflect on why we follow Jesus. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because you, you think he's just going to make your life comfortable and happy all the time? Anybody who's walked with the Lord more than a couple years will go, Yeah, sorry, that's not true. What happens when you're not happy? What happens when life doesn't go the way you're expecting it to go? Are you going to be mad at him? Maybe. Will you blame him? Perhaps. Will you blame him when your relationships fall apart because you expected him just to fix them all? I mean, Jesus said, I'm, gonna, I'm not bringing peace, I'm bringing the sword, right? There's going to be relationships that, that break because you've decided to pledge your allegiance to Jesus, to acknowledge him as Lord rather than the things of the world. I've walked with many Christians who only follow Jesus for platforms and freedom and make their faith a transactional one. And I've sat in many rooms with people one-on-one over my years, and they'll say, hey, God didn't come through with me the way I expected it, so therefore he's not there. Or God didn't come through the way that I was wanting him to go through, therefore I'm going to leave him. And it's the same as these thousands of people seeing all of his wonders, seeing all the things he can perform, looking him in the eyes, not recognizing who he is, and saying, I don't want you because I expected something different. Yet here is the great I am, the I am, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, seen and unseen. The I will be and he will be standing before them. And this is the important thing as we look about the, the bread of life is the prize is never in what the Lord can do for you. The prize is always the Lord. The prize is the I am. The prize is knowing who he is, standing with him, partnering with him, walking with him in every single season of life, and experiencing him in every depth and in every high. That is the prize. That is the satisfaction that the Lord is giving us and what was offered. And here's the Lord's expectations, in John 6, 28-29, and so in verse 20-29 of, of this passage, he says this, the, the people are going, hey, what can we do to perform the works of God? I mean, how many of us would love to just to be able to create fish and loaves whenever we wanted to? I know in staff meetings, we've been like, that would be awesome to feed people every Sunday. What do we have to do to be able to do that, God? And Jesus replied with this, he's like, you want to know my expectations for you? Believe in the one he has sent. That should break every religious checklist item we've ever built in our heads and just throw it away. Because all he said is like, when you come to me, I just want you to trust me. I just want you to put your faith in me. I want you to to recognize who I am when you come to me. His one expectation was believe. And that word pistis, we've talked about this before, is the same idea of following you know, loyalty, trust, faith, all of our English words can be encapsulated in that one word. It says, hey, just put your faith in me. Trust in me. Believe in me. Understand who I am. He's not looking for strong people who can carry a lot of burden. He's looking for people who depend on him and want him and make them stronger. He's not looking for, for tough, strong people. He's looking for people I wonder, that he can raise up who will trust Him and put their faith in Him. And let's be honest, most of us came to the Lord lost and confused and broken and afraid and unsure of what we're actually doing. That's a great place to meet the Lord. Don't try to to come to a place before you have everything figured out. You're going to spend your entire life trying to figure it out and you're never going to know who He is. I mean, look, I I had to kind of self-reflect in my own life and if you know my story, I was a I was what's called a prodigal, someone who knew the Lord and then decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to go taste the world because I think the world has a lot more to offer. And I ended up addicted to things that destroyed my relationships, addicted to to things that destroyed my, my soul, really, broken in ways that I could never even fathom, trying to prove myself constantly as worthy, trying to prove myself constantly as worthy of love, of relationships, whatever that might be. Yet it was coming out of this phase. It was seeing Jesus finally for who he actually was. And seeing it's not about the things he can offer me, not about the things he can give me, because I went into the world trying to think of all these things that I could experience or have or want or desire. And then when all those things collapsed, it was just Jesus standing there going, I'm the prize. That he was enough for me. And that's when everything shifted in my mind, in my heart, and in my life when I realized he was the only thing that I could grab hold of that wasn't going to leave me broken. That wasn't going to leave me disappointed and discouraged because of who he was and who he is. It was this simple expectation of taking one day at a time, trusting him, every single day, and letting him restore my soul, my life, my relationships, one day, every day, leading me here to you right now, proclaiming his goodness. You know, I think about the parents and friends who have prodigal kids and prodigal buddies and, and family members. You know, through those days, the, the, I, to this day, I still think about this, What it was, I think, that that really was impactful to me and what really the Lord did to, to, to bring me home. I really contributed to the prayers of my parents. The fact they never gave up on that because they knew who he was. They knew who they were praying to. They knew the power that dwelled within the I am and they knew that he had the power to bring me home. Parents of prodigals, don't stop praying for your kids. Family members who have left, don't stop praying for your friends and your brothers and your sisters, because that's how prodigals come home. And I'm an example of that. It was the shift from seeking the power that God could give to seeing that he was the prize that our souls thirsted for, that our lives hungered for, that authentic satisfaction is found outside of the perishing things of this world that are lost. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Don't go chasing after the perishing things, those things that are just going to, to go away tomorrow. You can have a full belly today and still be hungry tomorrow. He says, don't go after satisfaction in that way. Find the authentic satisfaction of the one God has sent, found in him. In verses 31 through 35, Jesus is saying this, our ancestors, this is the crowd saying this, the ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus responds again, he says, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. But my Father gave you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Of course, everyone asks, well, give us some of that. And Jesus looks at him. And I like to think he probably paused here for a minute and gave them a moment to just reflect. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the satisfaction. I am the thing your soul hungers for. You know, we we love proclaiming the names of God, and you'll hear all the time, Jehovah Jireh, God provider, which he is. Praise God to that. But how many of us praise God that it's praise God, the satisfier? The satisfier, the satisfaction to my soul that leaves me not wanting more, that leaves me not hungry for more, but leaves me authentically satisfied in who he is. He says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Authentic satisfaction found in the constant, eternal, and lasting Jesus. Because Jesus satisfies. Just as bread satisfied the hunger of the Israelites in wilderness, Jesus claims that he will be the satisfaction of all real needs. So I want to read a quick little macro research study. This is a, um, it was a sociologist who said this. And so I, I, I captured it and wrote it down. I thought it was good, great to share. But he, he says this, We're wealthier than ever, but unhappier than ever. This is talking about just cultural society at large here. We're more prosperous, but more depressed. We have faster and faster transports, but we're faster and faster to complain about it. In more countries, there are more suicides than there are Homicides. We now have more goods and services than ever before. We have technology improving exponentially, but we don't see a corresponding increase in our life satisfaction. It's one of the great paradoxes of our time. Our culture, our context, everything is focused on the satisfaction of the perishable. Get faster, do more, build more, do things, have more satisfaction in what you earn and what you gain and, and how you treat people. And it's these things that are just so temporary. We cannot rely on the perishing things of the world. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us that he is the only thing that will not perish. And this is what the beauty of the resurrection is, is that he proved it, that he proved it, that he would not perish. But if we are looking to be fully satisfied, if we are looking to have that authentic satisfi- satisfaction, we're always going to be disappointed when we put it into the things of the perishing. We live in fear of losing those things that will ultimately perish. I think about, you know, I, I built a, a PC. Nerd, I know, sorry. but I, I built, And I'm always like, one day this thing is going to go out and I will be very, very sad. Because I, I, I enjoy it. It's fun for me to enjoy. It. And I always kind of get a heart check there when I do that because it's like, you're right, this thing will perish one day. Why do I get so, why would I be so emotionally distraught when this thing that ultimately will break will break one day? Knowing that there is a Lord who is like, I was broken for you and now I am restored, ready to be resurrected or in resurrection in life. So ultimately, Church, I want us to hold tight to the prize that is Jesus. The I am, the the burning bush speaking I am, freedom liberating, slave breaking Jesus I am. Coming to him, trusting him, believing him in all circumstances that we may have full satisfaction for our souls in whom we have eternal life and ultimately a resurrection into the new Eden, into the new creation where we will forever and eternally be in the presence of our prize, Jesus Christ. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.